Promise No Promises, Feminism Under Corona. Episode 7, we created unconventional spaces for ourselves. The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism, where not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The seventh episode follows a conversation with Mariam Khan, writer and editor of the book It's Not About the Burqa, a first-person anthology of essays of 17 Muslim women's stories that gives rise to a collective voice where differences are as important as similarities in creating a community of their own within the spectrum of feminism and world-making. I discovered It's Not About the Burqa by Chance, in a bookstore looking for another book. I grabbed it right away and took it with me. It felt like a serendipitous event. This concept refers to unexpected discoveries or findings that we recognize as valuable and important. There are many effects of the pandemic on the reality we live in. Among them, the enormous reduction of a fortuitous or accidental situation and experiences. The previous spontaneity of socialization changed into a careful and exhausting organization of our possibilities of personal contacts and our way of being in the world together with other people. Reading It's Not About the Burqa for Me was like being anonymously invited to meet another community of feminists, but not in order to talk to or discuss with them, but mainly to listen and to unlearn. I don't think there's a good way to summarize a book, nor do I think that texts ask us to summarize them, but to read them and let ourselves be read by them. It occurs to me that one way of presenting It's Not About the Burqa is the final statement made by its editor, Mariam Khan, in the introduction to the book. We are not asking for permission anymore. We are taking up space. We have listened a lot of people talking about who Muslim women are without actually hearing Muslim women. So now we are speaking, and now it's your turn to listen. As Mariam herself says in our conversation, 17 texts are only 17 voices within the myriad of ways Muslim women think and act around the world. With the exception of one of these essays, the 17 texts that shaped this book are based on the first-person experiences of Muslim women within the context of the UK. Faith, feminism, sexuality, race, community, celebration, criticism, frustration, struggles, agreement and disagreement are fundamental issues in this book. As in the direct style of its authors, putting into words a visceral thought that manages to reach where many academic texts do not want to go. The title of Mariam Khan's essay, Feminism Needs to Die, 
works as a personal and collective statement in favor of an intersectional feminism that takes into consideration the particularities and oppressions of all women and all social minorities. When feminism is concerned only with a few women, then it ceases to be liberating and becomes a tool of oppression for a large number of women. One of the many clichés that Mariam and all the authors of the book dismantle is the moral superiority of the secular West over religious cultures. Islam as a religion that empowers women is a constant affirmation in the book, which the authors demonstrate with historical facts and practices. Islam also offers a female referent, like that of Khadija, a powerful divorced businesswoman who would remarry at the age of 40 to the prophet Muhammad when he was only 25. The conversation with Mariam Khan took place at the end of October 2020. She was in London and I was in Berlin. With the arrival of autumn and the glaring increase of infections and death, most European governments have imposed a second lockdown. Far from the policies of care that we now need more than ever, most political leaders use a war narrative to strategically avoid the degree of responsibility in the current situation. Moreover, Europe's general concern about the approaching Christmas in a lockdown situation demonstrates again the secular hypocrisy and structural racism of its different and questionable democracies. European governments have not been at all concerned about maintaining and supporting other religious rituals and social celebrations of their citizens in the current pandemic situation, among them Ramadan, as mentioned by Mariam. The state of vigilance and mutual accountability that has emerged during the pandemic is however not new to Muslim women in Western societies. The Western gaze is a form of violence that police their bodies and exoticizes them, misrepresenting Muslim women as submissive and equal to each other, whereas the reality is very much different. Now that we all have to wear a mask in public for reasons of health and mutual care, a necessary question that reappears is, Why are so many reasons more legitimate than others to cover or uncover faces or bodies? It's Not About the Burqar is a book that brings up the present and past of Muslim women in the British context, but also the future. In her dedication, Mariam includes her nieces, Amelia and Ila, celebrating the Muslim women of the future. The fight for women's right is to fight for all women's right and all the different communities. Making it real may be complicated, but understanding is the first step that has to be taken.
So if we start with Edward Said's Orientalism, and Edward Said basically focused his theory of Orientalism on the way the West saw Arabs. And then we sort of bring that in and we talk about the othering of Muslims and Islam throughout the West. So I very much can talk from it from a British Muslim perspective. So I am a British Muslim woman and I have grown up in the UK. So my mother's from Pakistan, but she's lived here now longer than she lived in Pakistan, essentially. Very much like my experience comes from that community, from the Pakistani Pathan community, which is quite a different one to just the South Asian one. But in terms of how the West sees Muslim and Islam, it's very much takes from Edward Said's Orientalism and how it sees it as a threat and as othering and as not good enough. And the West believes it's superior and it has better values. And it's a minimizing identity that has been pushed upon Muslims. And then when we talk about Muslim women in that sort of sphere of things, it gets even more intense. There's often conversations around Muslim women and some of the things that I find incredibly frustrating is that often when we talk about Muslim women, we're stuck on the way Muslim women's bodies are dressed or the way they look or what how they're at occupying spaces. And often they're not allowed to occupy spaces because often Muslim women are perceived to be submissive and ignorant. They don't have the ability to make autonomous decisions and they don't have agency so there's a lot of othering and there's a very specific a narrative that is projected onto muslims in britain If I'm to talk about it a little bit more widely, sort of Europe, France is being the, one of the countries beside the UK that I'm incredibly interested in in terms of the way that it treats Muslims. I feel like it's very hypocritical. Even as recent as, you know, COVID times, wearing a face covering in France is mandatory at the moment, which completely is understandable. I'm not saying nobody should wear it. Like, you know, we need to beat COVID and wearing a face mask is very important. But the irony and the hypocrisy of that is that there is a law that basically says that Muslim women who cover their faces, who wear niqab, niqab is basically a facial covering for Muslim women, that they would be fined. So I find it really ironic that what the niqab covers is essentially what a face mask covers. But if it's a Muslim woman wearing a niqab, she would be fined. But if it's for COVID, it's a very different thing. And, and, and it's very interesting because France pictures itself as a secular society, but I very much don't believe that it treats other religions in the way that it treats Islam and Muslims in that country. There's a lot of othering, sort of a demonization of Muslims and Islam in the Western sphere. everyone's now policing. It's very interesting now to see how people are pointing to others and saying, well, you're not wearing a face covering. Whereas before it was them pointing to Muslim women and saying, why are you wearing a face covering? It's very interesting that now we are aware of that policing, but in terms of Muslim women, it seemed to be absent that acknowledgement of policing bodies.
It's Not About the Burqa, which is essentially a collection of essays by Muslim women, by 17 different Muslim women, and I'm the editor as well. The really interesting thing for me, so the title of the book being It's Not About the Burqa, we realised that actually burqa in the UK was one of the most popular or the most synonymous words when it came to Muslim women. And I remember actually I wrote something for another collection. I wrote about France and its ban on the burqa, basically. I forget where the research is from, but essentially when I looked at the research, it showed that of the, what, 60 million people who live in France, there's about 2,000 women back then when they did that research that wore the burqa. So out of 60 million, what is it, 2,000 or 200 or something like that, it's very minuscule. And I remember thinking, why in God's name, does the government feel so threatened that they need to legislate against this very, very small minority of Muslim women and, and what are they getting out of it? It was a conflict for me putting the title of the book as it's not about the burqa. It was because I feel like an identity has been created around Muslim women that they haven't necessarily agreed to or that they haven't necessarily put out there. And it's these people with platforms and voices that have said, well, Muslim women are submissive, they're oppressed and they're, you know, they wear burqas and that's about it. That's all there is to Muslim women. And it's really unfair. So when I was putting together the book, it was, do I play into that and then undo it? It's like a puzzle piece that you're undoing. And there's a frustration in there as well, because I'm 27, I haven't created that narrative around Muslim women and the burqa. And many people within my generation and even the generation before me would argue that that's not a narrative that they would identify basically with um, when they come to their Muslimness. Picking that title, it was kind of this idea that we were challenging the narrative that was being created around Muslim women. And even across Europe, it's something that we constantly keep seeing come up, the burqa, and who has a say on women's bodies. And Muslim women's bodies, much like many other women's bodies as well, but this very specific Islamophobic narrative Muslim women's bodies have become sort of a political battleground almost on who can you know win the most points on and it's never really about how liberated or how great Muslim women are or how much is being provided for them it's about this idea of control and that's what it comes down to right it's about who's controlling these bodies how can we show them and I think it's really interesting that when the image or the narrative that's projected onto Muslim women it's one that sort of become homogenized and that being done I find really interesting because now what you have is you can just claim well all Muslim women are oppressed and it's really easy to stick a label of oppression on a group if you can homogenize the entire group if you can say well all of this group are exactly like each other there is no difference between the groups there's a lot of difference between me as a british pakistani muslim who has who's patan culturally and then difference between someone who's from let's say zanzibar and they're british and they're black our faith is one but our the way that we practice our cultural identity the values that we have they're very different
in acknowledging that it's not about the burqa, the shortcomings of the Muslim identity being that we were stuck in this narrative, or we still are, if I'm very honest with you. Like, if we go back to something very prevalent in terms of the burqa, the Shamima Begum case, every single person that was talking about Shamima Begum, the ISIS bride, had a picture projected of her in a burqa, essentially. I mean, that's what she wore, but also that was all the narrative that was created around her. Undoing that narrative to help people recognise that actually that isn't the narrative that every Muslim woman adopts and there is diversity within this identity was essentially the whole point of putting this book together. And putting it together, a lot of people said, well, don't you want to write a whole book? And I was like, no, because what will happen is someone will pick this book up and be like, oh, Mariam's a Muslim woman. She's exactly like all other Muslim women. And I'm like, absolutely not. It was a challenge for me as the editor because there are conflicting opinions in the book. The women in the book disagree with each other. There are parts in which I disagree with the women. I remember that last year at the launch when we all came together and we did an event we couldn't fit 17 on the stage so we had about six of us on stage we did a panel and even on stage these muslim women who were in the book these contributors they disagreed on stage in public in front of this mass audience that we had we had you know a sold out event and i don't think that you get to see that nuance what happens when islamophobia takes over these narratives and the racialization of islam and muslims and sort of this dominant Arab culture gets applied to everything and this othering happens is we don't allow for the Muslim community to have internal conversations. They're often co-opted by Islamophobes and Islamophobic inclinations. I feel frustrated on two parts as a Muslim woman. I feel frustrated by sort of the labeling of Muslims in the West. But then I feel frustrated that we as a Muslim community are also not allowed to have internal conversations, to grow, to question, to interrogate each other. And even as Muslim women, it's often that, you know, I talk about this in my essay as well, I'll come on to it later in detail if you want me to, but I talk about how even as a feminist, I'm a struggling feminist because in feminist spaces, I'm not seen in the way that I wish I was seen. I don't know if you have read a book called The Good Immigrant by Nikesh Shukla. Nikesh Shukla, he's a very good friend of mine and a mentor too. And he's been a writer for the last, what, 20 years. He's phenomenal. He's a kids and YA writer, but he's also written adult books. So he had a book out called The Good Immigrant. And essentially, it was this play on how the value of immigrants is only there when they can play the role of the good immigrant, right? The acceptable, the celebrated, the successful one. So all the immigrants that needed something, they weren't the good immigrant. And so he put a collection together of, I think it was like 21 essays, I'm not sure. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, like, isn't this a very different voices saying different things, but thematically it's the same, right? Then I was friends with Nikesh, or I still am even. And I remember saying to him, oh, Nikesh, if I could put a book together about Muslim women, this is what it would be. And he was like, 
why don't you? <laughs> to his credit, he really pushed me and he was like, okay, well, you're gonna do this now. So that's how the process started. And then finding the women, I did a lot of research. So no, I didn't put people who are my friends in the book. It was genuinely a lot of research and I wanted to have a, exactly like you said, 17 essays, 17 including me, so 16 other women, is a fraction of what the Muslim identity is. Often some of the criticism that I do get from the book is that, you know, I wish you'd covered like Australian Muslims. I wish you'd covered Pakistani. And I'm just like, it was only one book and I only had some space and I couldn't have everyone in it. I've had so many people reach out to me to say that they've been inspired by the book and that they've done projects since and everyone wants a second book and I'm like, everyone needs to calm down because the second book is probably not gonna happen because I need a break. Putting the book together, I wanted there to be that depth and diversity of what even I had access to in terms of the Muslim female identity. In all fairness to myself, if I do say so myself, I did focus on the British Muslim identity other than Mona al Tahawi, who is phenomenal. I really admire Mona and her, her outrightness and her, the way she speaks up. And so other than her, everyone else in the book is British. They have other intersections of their identity, but they live in Britain. And I really wanted to focus on that narrative because I didn't want to have a broad global, because it's, it's a lot. I wanted to show the depth and diversity of British Muslim women. It was also a sort of reaction from me to something that our previous Prime Minister David Cameron said, and he was asked something about Muslim women. And he basically said something along the lines of Muslim women are traditionally submissive was leaked into the papers that he had said. And I remember I remember reading that and I remember thinking if this man is highly educated obviously has access to Muslim women you know who are highly educated I don't for a second believe that he hasn't come across a highly educated Muslim woman and if he hasn't that that's a problem but that he believes that Muslim women are traditionally submissive he holds the highest position or highest office position in our land and this is what his interpretation of Muslim women is and this is what he's selling to the general public I felt really insulted by that Muslim women are looking around and they're thinking the only narrative around is this oppression, terrorism and submission. What am I doing? Where are all the other Muslim women? And there's so many Muslim women doing amazing things, different things, right? Just as we see in the book, they're journalists, they're writers, they're script writers, they're activists, they're people who work in mental health. There's so many different women in that book. And I really, really, really wanted to demonstrate a minuscule amount of the depth and diversity of British Muslim women in the UK. And I completely hear for the criticism that it's a very very small amount of a very big community I agree but I just couldn't put everything in that book unfortunately generally the readers tell me oh you should have put this and you should have put this and you should you missed this and I'm like yes I know but I only had one book I would have loved to cover like disability, further things in education. I would have loved to cover more of mental health. You know, there's so many other areas that I would have loved to have put in this book. There were so many women and with that we wanted, I wanted their voices to be valued in the way that they were. 
You can agree or you can disagree. I really don't care. I agree and disagree and I'm the editor and I put those essays in there. But the essence and the point of the book is to show the depth and diversity of the Muslim identity and for people to just go away with the idea that oh, actually, they disagree with each other. Oh, I didn't realise that Muslim women can... The whole point of that entire thing was to create a platform where you could see that these women were aligned in one way, but that they also had very different opinions. And I think that is what we lack. We lack that nuance of that diversity in the conversations that we do have around Muslim women. One of my other frustrations around that narrative is that when conversations around Muslim women do happen, um, they're not led by Muslim women. It's, you know, other people in power, whether it's Muslim men who are talking about Muslim women or whether it's white men talking about Muslim women. It's rarely, rarely ever Muslim women talking about Muslim women. And I find that so frustrating. (laughs) thought that I was a part of this global women's much not in the same way because I think that trans women are going through a lot more right now I can only feel for their struggle basically and it's just absurd what they're going through so my frustration with feminism came from my belief maybe it was a naive belief I don't know but I believed that as a woman I was standing on this global stage with all these other women and everyone had my back and we were supporting each other and it was a sisterhood and there was solidarity and then I kind of woke up (laughs) oh hang on it doesn't work like that and then I started to do some research and historically if we look at history Often it's that white women prioritized and then the rest of us are told, wait, wait for your rights, wait for your things that you should have, wait until white women get it, wait. Even in the spaces that I then started to occupy as I was in the working world and prior to that whilst I was studying, I realized that actually when it came to situations as I was going through life, that whiteness would align with whiteness. So although white women are women, they would rather benefit from their race because hierarchically it puts them in a position of strength basically and they would rather align themselves with men through their race than they would align themselves with women of color any women with other intersections in their identities through their gender i absolutely will fight for the rights of women i believe that we should have autonomy over our bodies i don't care the way a woman dresses whether she completely covered or completely naked i'm absolutely for it whether she wants to free her nipples or not everything have sex not have sex have kids not have kids whatever you want to do i'm here for it i started to realize that that when it came to me that narrative wasn't the same and often it wasn't just that it was this frustration even or even gaze of perspective that I was viewed from that when I would start talking I'd often get told well you don't sound like I thought you would sound or how can you be um, feminist and wear hijab and it was this idea this denialism that I could have any sort of intellect or capability or autonomy or agency or opinions just because they saw me as a Muslim woman it was taking away any ability for me to make any decisions about myself or what I wanted to do. 
As frustrating as patriarchy is, I feel like when in my essay, Feminism Needs to Die, what I'm addressing is essentially, I'm addressing white feminism. And let me be very clear, white feminism isn't necessarily white women because you can not be a white woman and still prescribe to white feminism, as I explain in the book. One thing that I feel like we miss out on talking about very much so is all of us agree patriarchy is shit. But like as much as we all as women recognize that, you know, the patriarchy is something that we need to stand against and in ways we do, we struggle, but we do. We haven't recognized that there is a group of women in our society who believe that there is one way to be a feminist and that if you don't prescribe to that way of being a feminist, then you're not empowered. You don't have agency, you don't have intelligence, you don't have capability and they're superior to to you. And once I finally figured that out, once it clicked in my brain, I thought, we can't do this. We can't move forward as women we're being asked to leave half of our identities behind. Now, I'm specifically talking about in spaces where I was told, you can be a woman, but you can't be Muslim. I've had friends who've had, you can be a woman, but you have to leave your blackness at the door. How? How do you do that? How am I supposed to exist in these spaces, leaving half of my identity behind? And more to the point, why should I do this? Like, shouldn't the whole feminism space accept me in my entirety? Again, that title comes from the idea of feminism that has been sold to us in mainstream, Western, white feminism. It needs to die. It needs to be done. It needs to be buried. It needs to go. It needs to go whatever it needs to go, but it needs to not be here. The essay in itself is very snapshot into something I would have loved to develop into an entire book. I then go on to talk about Kimberly Crenshaw's a black American woman who came up with the term intersectional feminism. And when she was talking about intersectionality, she was talking about LGBT communities and black communities. I borrowed the term from her in the book and I sort of say, if we're to move forward essentially in sort of the spaces of women and Muslim women and in feminism, then we need to accept that it's intersectional feminists that are gonna rule the space basically. We cannot, we mustn't as women prescribe to this idea that there is this hierarchy amongst women, that there is right to be one type of woman than you know another type. And just because you can't see eye to eye with someone, it doesn't mean that they're less than you, that they're less superior, that they don't have agency or autonomy or the ability to make decisions for themselves. I think growing up, what I really wanted was I wanted someone to say, yeah, Mariam, come and join us, you know, sit at this table. And nobody ever did. And in that essay, I'm finally saying, you know what? I'm not waiting for you to give me a space. I'm taking that space from you. I'm creating that space. And all of us women who recognize that feminism is as much about being intersectional as it is about being a woman, we can all sit here. And you, you are irrelevant. We're not allowing your white feminism, white narrative to take over and sort of rule what feminism should be which in my naive understanding of it when I was you know growing up it was this idea that women stood hand in hand with each other and it was like this global platform in a very utopian world my utopian understanding of it I mean that has shattered long ago
feminism capitalism is a whole other aspect of everything and i think that this idea that you can make money off of women especially in what the last couple of years has really revolutionized what feminism is there's an essay in the book by nafisa bakar and she talks about the muslim pound and how all of a sudden it seems that over the past few years industries have realized oh hang on we can have modest clothing and then we can appeal to a whole muslim audience and all of the money that they have and it's not about necessarily allowing those communities to have a platform to have an identity but what that what they have done is they've built these caricatures of these identities and put clothes on them or put makeup on them or put them in Nike ads or put them in wherever else they're putting hijabis and modest fashion women at the moment and said, okay, well, this is representation, but actually it's not really about representation for them. It's about making money. And so I find capitalist feminism and capitalizing off feminism quite problematic. But I mean, then I know there are quite a few women who would argue that being a capitalist and a feminist is something that allows them as form of liberation. So I'm not in a slightly discouraging that, but I do think that institutions and industries suddenly waking up to this idea that, oh, we've forgotten to represent Muslim women. It's not about representation for Muslim women. It's about them making money, basically. incredible point about civility and like profanity it's something actually Mona el so she's in the book but also she's written a, um, her own book it's called the seven necessary sins if I'm not much mistaken and in it she talks about the power of profanity and women swearing and how it disrupts the patriarchy and how angered the patriarchy is by us using profanity to get our points across and I find that very interesting especially as a woman of color I feel like it's a double-edged sword because often I feel like other women can see you as not being a part of the civil society if you don't prescribe to a certain way to get your message across. And actually, this is very true, especially with British people, because as soon as you start shouting at British people, they switch off, they're off, they're done. I don't know how much attention you pay to British politics at least, but if you look at the likes of someone like Jacob Rees-Mark, he will say the most absurd things, but with a very calm, with a very British accent. So he could be saying, let's murder children. And he hasn't said that, but he could be saying that and everyone would be fine with it because he's saying in a very calm way. But as soon as I get a bit frustrated about the way Muslim women have been treated, I'm cut off. That's it. I'm wild. I'm crazy. I'm an angry feminist. Uncivil. There's all of that narrative around. Afshan D'Souza Lodi, who talks about the journey of her hijab and her sexuality. I find her essay very upsetting. Even when I edited it, I cried. <laughs> and even when she read some of her essay out at the launch, 
there wasn't a dry eye in the house, basically. I remember looking over at my agent and my agent just lifted her glasses and wiped her tears away from her eyes. In her essay, Afshan basically talks about her struggle to find sort of acceptance in the LGBT community as a Muslim woman, because like you said, these spaces are completely pitted. And so, I'm not someone who feels incredibly knowledgeable to talk about the entire LGBT Muslim narrative. But what I will say is that there are many non-Western countries in the world that have acknowledged gender being more than two genders than the West has. So there are a very ahead in terms of this. And I feel like the mass colonization of the world is the reason for the way that we now have genders in a very set way. And it was a very British thing that was spread through colonization into the wider world. Having said that, I do acknowledge that there are struggles between LGBT and Muslims, but there also are Muslims who are a part of the LGBT community, and this is something that isn't acknowledged or discussed. And often when people pick up on these conversations from the right-wing people, they're like, you know, but Muslims want to kill all the... L but some Muslims are a part of the LGBT community. They don't have the spaces. But the reason why Afshan's essay upsets me is because she doesn't feel like there's a complete space for her within the Muslim community. And then there isn't a complete space for her within because she identifies within the LGBT spectrum and then also because in the LGBT community where she's told, well, you're a Muslim, you can't be a part of this community. And it kind of leaves her in no man's land, right? It leaves her, well, what am I then? And where am I accepted? And where is my community? And I find it so frustrating. And maybe this is my very individualistic approach to this, but as a practicing Muslim, I'm 27, I was born Muslim. I don't believe that God put any of us on this planet to make someone that miserable and to make them feel like they don't have a community. I don't believe that that is our space to judge or to make someone feel like that. I don't believe that that is what we should spend our lives doing. We shouldn't spend our lives telling people, well, you can't be a part of this community because of X, Y, and Z, and the other way around, you can't be. You know, I really don't prescribe to that form of thinking. So for me, that conversation, I feel like is often co-opted. Again, coming back to my frustration earlier about how I wish there was more spaces where the Muslim community could have a dialogue about things on their own without people from the outside of that Muslim community coming in to project the Islamophobia on us and then blowing the conversation up so we can't have a full dialogue. It would be fantastic to have a conversation around LGBT communities and Muslims without someone projecting Islamophobia into that space. And I feel like the way that the LGBT community and the Muslim community view those women has made it so hard for them, even harder. So it breaks my heart. There's this book, it's written by Asma Balis. I don't know if you can say it. And essentially what she does, she looks at the whole of the Quran and she looks at it from a non-patriarchal, non-gendered, because God is not gendered in Islam. 
God is not a he, it's not a man. There is no gender prescribed to you. And that's not how we learn it when we're taught. And so I find this really interesting. And when you were just talking about faith, there, I, that just reminded me of the fact that often when people talk about faith, when they talk about God as well in faith, they think of God as a man, and that isn't the case in Islam. This book is really like challenging in that perception as well, because it basically breaks down Often when people pick out problematic sections or random sections from the Quran, they're like, you're allowed to hit women. Well, no, you're not. The Quran doesn't say that. Women aren't allowed to divorce. Yes, yes, they are. There's a whole essay in it. People do it. I have met more women who understand the Quran, who feel empowered by the Quran, than I have met women who feel empowered by the current society that they live in. Because from its inception, Islam has allowed women the right to vote, the right to own property, the right to be educated, the right to work, the right to choose who to marry. I feel like often all of that gets lost in the Western narrative that is projected on Muslim women. And it's really frustrating because then what we end up having is, you know, like the conversations that I have with other women, well, you can't be a feminist because you wear hijab and it's absolutely absurd. you talking about that reminded me of how often when we talk about faith and we talk about Muslim women and the Quran, people have this idea that they know what the Quran says about Muslim women and actually they don't. I feel like many Muslim women that who have taken the time to understand, who have been allowed the space to, because I will agree that a lot of the spaces within the Muslim community are driven by men. And again, the patriarchy comes into it, right? Because if there's no access to information, women can't be empowered. So this is what I felt like the book was doing as well. It was allowing Muslim women to realize, actually, hang on, the Quran doesn't say this about women, or maybe that's a cultural thing. And as much as the book was an education for white women and non-Muslim women, it was an education for Muslim women to actually realize, hang on, Islam empowers me. Islam encourages me to have agency. It encourages me to be educated, to work, to have autonomy. And I think those are the things that are often lost. And that's what I wish the book imparts to people, basically. Especially with the collection of experiences that we see throughout the book. We see one of the women, Simon Mir, talk about how she's been divorced three times or two times. I love this, this is fantastic. In Islam, you are allowed as a Muslim woman to divorce as many fucking times as you would like to because you don't want to be married anymore. Khadija. The Prophet didn't have anything. He didn't have wealth. He wasn't necessarily incredibly educated, but obviously the revelation came through the Prophet. But like Khadija bin Khalid, she was a divorcee. She was older. I think she was in her 40s, if I'm not much mistaken. She was the wealthiest merchant in that land as a woman in that time period. I genuinely don't understand when people sit here and say to me, Oh, Muslim women can't do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, where are you getting this information? I don't understand. And in Sophia Ahmed's essay, she talks about how she built her political career and her advertising career and how every time she felt that, or she was told that you can't make it because you're a Muslim woman, she'd think, no, hang on, 
I've got someone to look up to. I've got Khadija to look up to and I can look up to her and she can be my role model. And she did it and she was incredibly respected and I can be these things. When I talk about patriarchy, I'm not just talking about, you know, the white Western, I'm talking about even within our communities, there is a problem. I remember having this conversation with my mum and I remember saying to her, after this book publishes, nobody's going to like me. And she was like, why do you say that? And I was like, because we've gone after the white men. We've gone after the Muslim men. We've gone after the white women. We've gone after the Muslim women. We've gone after everyone in this book. She was laughing and she said, well, you know, you've just told the truth of the situation. And every group, every community can be improved through conversation. And this book was never about being liked. It was about being honest about the experiences and the sort of the modern day where we were where we are in terms of Muslim women and our identity and the things attached to us a lot of people read this book and feel incredibly challenged but then I also feel like that challenge is the thing if you feel uncomfortable when you read this book then we've done our job basically. If you feel angry, if you feel confused, if you feel those emotions, then that is that is absolutely what we want you to be feeling. Because I often feel uncomfortable in spaces that I'm in or that I'm made to put in or made to explain my identity or my humanity. If you can feel that for a marginal second, I'm very happy with that. I'm very happy to have made someone feel uncomfortable, to have made them feel sad, to have made them feel angry. That was the point. <laughs> I'm glad that you feel happy to read it. <laughs> as much as I love academic thinkers and critical thinking and like the works of women before me who have been incredible critical thinkers one of the things that I definitely wanted to do with the book was make it accessible to the average person I'm not here to be having like conversations with the academics I can have conversations with them fine but it's the general public that we need to like have these conversations with, right? We need to break that barrier to help that understanding, to build that identity or to rebuild it. It's the general public that we wanted to engage with this book. I say that, but at least twice a week I'm tagged in a picture and the book is being used as part of someone's degree reading, on a reading list in a university, at a library. So many people have embraced the book in so many different spaces organizations companies people in training people lecturers recommending it to their students even taking it into class and discussing i never thought that that would be the case we wanted to put this book together but we didn't think that would have such an impact and I feel like it has had a decent impact in the very small thing that it is and in, as we discussed it can't have everyone's opinion in it because it would never be published eventually you know to have everyone's opinions in it but the very small amount that it does cover I feel like it's made a quite a large splash in the world. In the UK, the domestic violence has risen in COVID. So domestic violence against 
women has risen and then the government had to address that by saying that initial lockdown had to say if you are going through domestic violence you are allowed to you are exempt from the lockdown rules essentially so you can get help so you can get to a safe place something that i've not thought about in this way that lockdown was set up for a very sort of nuclear specific family is really really interesting i was actually thinking about earlier that we had the furlough scheme where the government gave you know some people money because they weren't working anymore in that scheme like women young women have been really adversely affected in terms of losing their jobs and not being able to go back in terms of being made redundant i don't know if it's fair to say but i feel like lockdown and covid are going to drag women's empowerment back like 20 years at least in terms of the community, ethnic groups in the UK have been worst impacted by COVID. And I think that's really telling the way that our society has been set up to cater to a certain group of people and to not look after others. And actually COVID has been incredibly crippling to a lot of our communities and the way that it's impacted us and the way that we've had to... The peak of COVID in the UK happened throughout Ramadan this year. We couldn't go and pray in mosques. We couldn't eat together. We couldn't be together as a community. And that was really, really, really hard. There's this narrative in the UK, oh, by Christmas time, oh, by Christmas time, everything will be okay and then we can all come together. It's not like Diwali's gone past where everyone's been alone or there's a Jewish holiday that just went past. Jewish communities had to spend separately without... I spoke to Jewish friends and they were completely isolated from their communities. Eid, Muslims celebrated two Eids under lockdown and both of them, basically, we were kept apart from communities and families. And then in our politics, our politicians are constantly saying, well, by Christmas, we can all come back together. And I'm like, "Mm, this is very interesting that, you know, you think by Christmas that things should be the way that they are. I think society is set up to benefit a specific groups. I really like your last question about Amelia and Ella and who they are. They're my nieces. The next generation and I wish that as much as I feel like my generation has made an impact, they are the new generation and I'm not someone who believes that we should not fight in this time because the next generation are going to come and make things better. For me, how I see it is we should fight for the next generation to not have to fight as hard as we did and to not have to start from the bottom like we did. Even if it's midway and they start up here, they can do better and better. They're my nieces and I absolutely adore them. So I wanted to dedicate the book to them and future Muslim women and women and just really hope that the work that we do in our present, we recognise that it has an actual impact, a cultural impact, a societal impact, impact and policy. I've spoken to quite a few politicians who've read the book. They're really like amazed by it, the diversity of it, the depth of it. We had a launch at the House of Commons we were invited and we talked about the new report that the government was putting out and we've had support from you. So I hope that the change that we make, we see that it's actually going to help Muslim women in the future. And that's basically my motivation as well. I don't want someone growing up in the way that I grew up as a Muslim woman. I wish I had this book when I was a teenager and I didn't. 
and I had to write it. <laughs> I had to put it together. If someone can read the book and feel inspired and think, wow, that woman over there is a journalist. I can be a journalist. Wow, that woman over there is a lawyer. She's running a national campaign to affect government policy. I can do that. That would be amazing for me. Age in Islam, I wouldn't say is a big thing because as we talked about Khadija, the Prophet's first wife, she was older than him, right? She was way older than him. It's very much about consent, not about age in Islam, I would say. But then I will say that flip it and then come to cultural Islam within the Pakistani culture, that's what I can speak for. I'm 27 now and I'm basically seen as like expired, I can't get married anymore. I'm too old now. So it's really interesting that if I was someone who basically just believed in culture, I couldn't get married anymore. Like I'm too old, I'm past the sell by date, I'm not appealing anymore. That's why when we look at the Quran and we look at Hadiths and we look at Islam and we see women and the way that they were treated. I think that's why these women are examples for us as women who often society wants to just use and throw away basically. So yeah, I don't know. Age is a really interesting thing when it comes to faith and culture. And I think it can be really contentious. And also that a lot of what the narrative has been created has been in terms of the relation to patriarchy. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut Tussouche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulcic and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, cultural, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. 
Instituto Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation CH in Grajina Kulcik. More information on museumsush.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing, Elena Cesar. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Susch, Art Stations Foundation CH 2020.